Father, we commit this time to you, and I thank you. I thank you for your presence with us. You are so good to us, Lord. I thank you for the blessed hope, the fact that you, Lord Jesus, are coming back, I believe, very soon for your bride, Lord. We want to be ready. We want to live lives of holiness. We want to live lives that are touching others in this last hour. Father, I, I, I just pray, as Peter says, Lord, that this would produce um, a purity within our hearts and a hunger and an urgency. Father, that's where this fellowship, the Assemblies of God, and, and early Pentecostals a century ago, Lord, when they knew that you were coming back soon, it drove them to reach the world. And it's why this fellowship today is around 74 million people around the world, because we believe that you're coming back soon. Speak to us tonight in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I've given you a general outline in the book of Revelation that goes back to chapter 1. I want to remind you, and I do see some new faces, so just be reminded that in the book of Revelation, if you want a basic outline, um, a grid, if you were, if you go to uh, uh, Revelation chapter 1, and if you look at verse 19, I look at that as the outline, okay? So if you want to understand, you want to help others to see this, I look at chapter 1. If you look in verse 19, right there for what you have seen. I see chapter 1 as what John has just experienced. Write this down. You have been in the presence of the resurrected, the Lord Jesus. And he's walking in the midst of his people. He's the great high priest. He's checking if there's oil in the lamp. That's chapter 1. And then Jesus says to John, you need to also write what is now. And I believe that he's speaking of what he's seeing in the church. In chapters 2 and 3, and we covered this several weeks ago, he is sending a message to seven churches. I remind you that this is what's called apocalyptic literature. I'm teaching this now in uh, various classes. Apocalyptic literature. Uh, or even in the, in the Spanish Bible, apocalypse. Um, I'm sorry, I have to see the accenting. Apocalypsis is the Spanish word for the book of Revelation because that's what it is. It is an unfolding. It is a revealing. And this type of literature was very, very unique, but very well known in that day. And for about 300 years of time, they used this type of literature, and it had a lot of symbols in it. So I've talked about that. I'm just refreshing your memory. So when you see the number seven of churches, or you see as, um, I'll just bring this next because we ended with the seven trumpets. When you see tr seven trumpets, you have to understand that in the Jewish mind of that day, they're looking at seven as a number of completion. Okay, And I believe when it's seven churches... I believe it's not just for those historical churches, those seven historical churches. I believe it represents all churches of all time, the good, bad, the ugly. It's, it's, God is, Jesus is reading the mail of his church. He knows us best. Then when you get to chapter 4, and remember Revelation 1.19 is like this, this, this table of contents, it's where we're going. He says, now, then, then write what will take place later. And that's where we are now, from chapters 4 all the way through 22, the end of the book, end of the book of Revelation. We are talking about what's going to take place later. And when John is called up into the presence of the Lord in chapter 4, and we looked at that glorious vision that he has in chapter 4 of the throne of God himself, 
And then chapter 5, the Lamb of God at his side. That, it's like God is pulling back the curtain and John is looking into eternity. And we've already met, and I just want to refresh your memory, around the throne of God, four living creatures. I happen to think that they're cherubim angels, highest ranking angels who represent nature. All the created world is represented around the throne of God, all bringing worship. And when they worship and they bring worship, 24 elders fall on their face. Those 24 elders, I believe, represent the people of God from all time. Old Testament, New Testament. Um, You can, in the notes, I go into why it would be 24, some suggestions there. But I want you to get that mental picture again, that this is what's going on in heaven. Then we were in chapter 5, and there is a scroll that is handed. Do you remember this? Refreshing our memory. We've got a, it's, it, it's been a couple of weeks since we were speaking, so let's refresh memory. Chapter 5, you've got this one who's seated upon the throne. He's the father, the ancient of days. Do you remember the chapter in the Old Testament that parallels this? Who remembers that? I'm sorry, I'm in my teacher mode right now, <laughs> like, like, like at the University of Valley Board. Who remembers that? Um, remember Daniel. Daniel in chapter, chapter 9, uh, chapter 7, excuse me, has this vision. Daniel has this vision of one who, he describes him as he looks like this, a, a son of man. In other words, he looks human, but he's coming before the Ancient of Days. And the Ancient of Days, now it doesn't say a scroll there, but the Ancient of Days gives him all authority and dominion. And in heaven, they're worshiping this one who looks like a son of man. Only God can be worshipped. So we know that this is the God-man. He, they would never have described, Jewish people never would have described the Father, uh, God the Father, Yahweh, as a son of man. They didn't see him that way. So there is another person before the throne of God who is described as a son of man. This is the exact picture in Revelation chapter 5. That this one who comes before the throne of God, he is introduced as the lion of the tribe of Judah powerful to the Jewish mind. He fulfills the Davidic covenant. He's the king who will reign forever. And yet, remember this, when he appears before the throne of God, he doesn't look like a lion. He looks like what? The lamb. And he looks slain. What does that mean? We're not really sure. Does that mean the nail prints in his hands? Quite honestly, to slay a lamb, they would cut its throat. What, we don't really know what that means, but he is not, he's not fallen. He's not um, incapacitated. He's strong. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah, and yet he bears the resemblance of a lamb. It's both. This is both the wisdom and the power of God. The power is in the fact that he conquered the grave. He's the lion of the tribe, but the, the wisdom of God is in the sacrifice that he presents. And this scroll, this is so important. I must emphasize again, the scroll is the key. You've got to understand the scroll that's in the hand of the Father, given to the Son, really to get the book of Revelation. Because the scroll, and do you remember what I had shared? That in in my studies, what I found was historically, and, you know, I've just got to tell you, Um, I've got a lot of books on my shelves and a lot of Revelation books on my shelves. And a lot of times people are just repeating what they're finding in other books. 
I think it's important to drill down, do your own word study. You can look at ancient dot. You can study this. And what I found in my studies in the first century, there was only one document that required seven seals on a document. Anybody remember what that, what that would be? A will. It's a last will and testament. Roman law required for some wills uh, that you would have seven witnesses, and they're going to put their insignia, their signet ring, which is also called a seal, into wax or clay. And they're tying up that scroll. And seven witnesses had to hear the person say they had to pronounce their will, and they're writing that will down. And seven men in that day had to attest that we know what's in this will. And we seal it. And then we, we, put, we put wax on it so that we know nobody's messed with this. Remember, this is critical. The seals are meant to keep you out of the document. And what's so interesting, and I think you know, it's, it, for me, it's the strongest reason. No. Probably the second strongest reason why I believe that the bride of Christ will be taken out of this world, that Jesus will come back, and we're going to meet him in the air. He's going to take us out of Revelation 3.10. I will take you out of the tribulation that's coming upon the entire earth. Number one, because I don't believe that we're going to face the wrath of God. I believe Jesus took my wrath for me on the cross. And 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 9 says that we are not appointed to wrath. But the second major reason is this, and it has to do with the seals. When you see this scroll put in the hands of Jesus, just like Daniel sees the Father, put this into the hands, then, John, remember this, John is weeping. Who can open the scroll? It's almost like he's getting it. This is a will. Who, who's going to fulfill the will of the Father? Who's going to settle the score? What a mess we have on planet Earth. And it's like John is weeping for all of us, all of humanity. And then one of the elders says, there is one who can open this. And he's the very one whose will this is. He's the testator. It's his will. It's actually the Father because we're talking one God. But the Father wills through his Son. The Father fulfills the redemption through the Son. Before the curse was the cure. Before, when God already knew that we were going to fail as a human race, he already provided the blood of Christ. You may want to note that. Revelation 13 and verse 8 is one of the most beautiful verses in the Bible. Revelation 13 and verse 8. It says that the Lamb of God is announced who was slain before the foundations of the earth. Okay? That means that before the curse, before we fell, God already had the answer. And so this is beautiful because how does somebody open their own will when they're dead? And it says that, I mean, well, the book of Hebrews says that it's, that it's required for a man to die in order for the will to be, to be released. That, that makes sense, right? You've got to have the person dead before you read the will. And the, and the heirs received that inheritance. Jesus had to die. That's why he is the only one who has the right. You go into Re Revelation chapter 5. All of heaven worships the Lord because he laid down his life. He shed his blood for us. He died. Therefore, he can open. And only he can settle the score. Only he can bring the resolve of God to this messed up world. Only he can solve this. And, re, and reclaim all that's been lost and forfeited by sin. 
how does a dead person open their own will? He's both the lamb who died, but also the lion who rose. So you see power and wisdom in this. That the very one who, had, who qualifies allows the will to be activated, opens his own will because he's alive to do this. Amen? Now, this is important because in chapter 6, as we covered, it is Jesus himself who begins to break the seals. And you've got seven seals. That's what was known in that day, meant to keep you out. But now it's time to go in. Can I remind you that in, Revel- uh, in, that in Daniel chapter 12, Michael the archangel addresses this very thing? And I happen to think that it's seeing this same scroll. This is my interpretation on it anyway. Daniel is told by Michael, seal this up because it's not time yet. And if you trace that back, and it's the very, it, it, we don't see the scroll in the hands of Jesus in Daniel chapter 7. But later in that chapter, it talks about the book of truth. Book in that day was a scroll. What is a scroll of truth? And if you trace it, those next several chapters, Daniel has been giving information about the last days. And Michael says, seal it up. It's not time yet. You follow that? Remember this. I'm trying to hit highlights for you. The book of Revelation is the most Old Testament, New Testament book. You've got 400 times someone counted this where you could say, that's found the Old Testament. That's found the Old Testament. You can refer back. This is part of the reason why I happen to, I love the book of Revelation. And I happen, this is my conviction. It's the most important book in the Bible because it's God's wrap up. It's his epilogue. It's, it's like, this is the final word. We don't know how all this ends. It's part of the reason I, I put that last part in the book, that last third. It's, it's doctrinal, it's fairly deep, but it's based on 48 different doctrines. 11 areas of study, but when you break it down, it could be angels, it could be Israel, it could be the church, but then you break that all down. Jesus, his humanity his ministries, his divinity. When you break that down, there are 48 doctrines in the Bible, and the book of Revelation addresses every one of those 48, and we don't really know how it all ends until you go to the book of Revelation. That's why I think that that's so important. All right, now, Jesus is opening that scroll because now it's time. What was sealed in the book of Daniel in chapter 12, it's now time to open because we're now in the last days and John is seeing that. And he's watching Jesus break these seals. And this is so important as well. Remember that you cannot open a scroll until all seven are, are, are broken. Oh, you can rip it apart, but that's not the picture that's there. There's a purpose in six seals being broken And then the seventh seal is not broken. Because I believe that God is sending a message before I open this seventh seal and roll out what's inside of this, I want to show you my dealings with two different groups. That's chapter 7. By the way, I think we all realize that there were no chapters or verses when John wrote this. Okay, that happened in different ways. It appears in different ways about a thousand. No, for John, it'd be about 900 years later. Okay, we don't begin to see until around the year 1000 AD verses and chapters. 
Okay, that's important to understand. But what you do have, even in ancient manuscripts, and let me just say this, I'm in my teaching mode, okay, right now. We have so many early manuscripts, we have zero, including the book of Revelation, we have zero what's called the autographs. We do not have the original scroll, I mean, the, the, the book of Revelation. We don't have that. We don't have any of the books of the Bible, the originals. But what we do have are thousands and thousands of handwritten copies from those originals. And scholars, some of you, and I know, Pastor Fogel, you remember this, and certainly our pastors here, they would know the name Stanley Horton. Stanley Horton, many of you, you know, was one of, my brother, yes, uh, you, I know you know of, of, um, of Stanley Horton. I had the privilege, as a matter of fact, his influence in my life is probably the reason I'm standing here tonight, because I had eschatology class, study of last things. When I was 26, I think I had him as my teacher. And he was a powerfully, he's a brilliant, brilliant man. He's now with Jesus. He died at the age of 99 a few years ago. But his, he was there at Azusa Street as a baby, okay, that outpouring of the Spirit of God. And he was so brilliant that he had an open contract with Harvard University. They wanted him so bad because he was such a genius. And he had no time for them, okay? But he was also a man of holiness, a powerful, powerful man. And uh, why was I speaking of Stanley Horton? Um, not sure. The reason, yes, okay, he whet my appetite for this, but I'm trying to make the connection back to him. But, uh, oh, I lost my train of thought. With my, you, you were told my birthday's tomorrow. The train runs off the track more often now. Okay. <laughs> yes, thank you. That's perfect. See, and sometimes I get assistance, and the train comes back in the track. It was Stanley Horton who said these words, and I'll never forget this. And and I know from teaching this now too that we have. If you just look at, at Greek manuscripts, so very, very early manuscripts, we have about 6,000 early handwritten copies from those early originals. We also have about 8,000 very early Latin copies. There are, if you want to study, and this is amazing, the Dead Sea Scrolls that were discovered in 1947, some of you know about that. You know the significance of that? We didn't have a manuscript of the Old Testament beyond the year 1100. That was the latest. That was the, the, the oldest that we had. When a little Bedouin boy in 1947 threw a rock up in a cave and heard something crash, they have found about 900 scrolls. Hundreds of those, are the, about 40% are the Bible itself. And in the Old Testament, they found scrolls that are 1,100 years earlier than anything we had before. And you know what? They matched, which says God's hand of protection is on his word. So this is what Stanley Horton, thank you, sister, for reminding me. This is what Stanley Horton said. And again, he, he studied. He was an expert in Greek and Hebrew. He said that scholars know, those who study the Bible, because, I mean, it could be a little bit upsetting to us. I tell students that we have not one shred of the original Bible. And the look, you know, can be, oh, how do we trust what we have? Stanley Horton said it this way. We know exactly 
within one-tenth of one percent exactly what was in those originals because we can compare the copies from those originals. And when you copy that, when you compare that, you know exactly because it's repeated so often. Um, And here's the other side of it. So that's like one word out of a thousand. Never does it affect doctrine. The changes between those, the changes between those from those different families of manuscripts, and I'm not sure why I'm bringing all of this tonight, but it's this. It comes down to the way that they count, the way they measure time, and so on. And their different cultures translated those original words differently. So I want you to understand that we can have confidence in the word of God. Somebody might say, why didn't God allow us to have the originals, what are called the autographs? Why don't we have? I would love to have it. I collect old things. I'm getting old. <laughs> and, and I would love to have I, I, I would love to have the book of Revelation, the original. I pay any price. Come on. I mean, it's, it's invaluable. I'm, I'm you know, just joking with you. Why do you think we don't have any of those? Um, I guarantee you people would be praying to them. They would be worshiping the paper, the papyrus. God, we, we worship the, the author of the book, not the book. And I believe that they would treat it like our, um, artifacts. And they literally, um, they say that there are more bones of Peter that they, that they worship. If you put all the bones of Peter together, you'd have hundreds of the Apostle Peters all over the world. Okay? So in other words, I think God purposely did not allow that. But what we do have is the word of God. Now, there was a question. All over the world. Okay, so let me segue there. There are places all over the world where you will find um, they're in, some are in museums, but most are in places like um, places of study. The Vatican does have some. But I urge you, if you have any opportunity, go to the Bible Museum in Washington, D.C. It'll change your life. And there you're going to find ancient manuscripts. You will find many, many very early manuscripts. It's in Washington, D.C. I've been there several times. Um, you, you, need, you will not cover it all in one day. It is one entire city block, six stories high, all dedicated to the Bible. One floor is just walking you through the ancient documents, and you can see these. You can see documents that are a thousand years old and so on and so on. Um, it, it really is fantastic. Now, um, so we get, so, so you don't have the seventh seal broken yet. You're not in the book, but then remember this in chapter seven. You have two multitudes, and one, I believe, is Israel, it is God's dealing with Israel. I'm just giving you this flyover, this memory. And then you see very, very much contrasted with 12 tribes of Israel, you have from every nation, and it's not 144,000 now, which I think could be a symbolic number. It's 12 times 12,000, it's the number of completion. It's all of those from Israel that will get saved during the time of Jacob's trouble. But then you have a multitude that cannot be numbered before the throne of God. And I believe that that's the church. And here's the key. Before the scroll is opened, the church is seen in heaven. 
Will people still get saved on earth? Absolutely. I had a student just recently say, so the Holy Spirit's not going to be there, right? No, the Holy Spirit doesn't leave. The Holy Spirit's ministry through the church as salt and life, light is taken out. But the Holy Spirit's still ministering through the 144,000. They're witnesses. They're fulfilling what God had for Israel. They are light to the Gentiles. Okay. You also have, and we're not going to be able to spend time in it tonight, but Revelation chapter 11, you have two witnesses. And they're in the streets of Jerusalem. And with our technology today and communication, we know that they're going to be able, they're going to be televised. Come on. Two guys who are in Jerusalem and they're calling down, calling down fire and working miracles. You know it's going to be all over. Uh, I'm not sure which stations are going to cover it, okay? But I have an idea of which ones will. All right? They're probably all going to treat it pretty differently. But my point is that the Holy Spirit has to be here for that to happen. But then you get into, and this is where we were, so just turn in your Bibles, and you know, I could just cover the notes with you, just line by line, but we're, we're not going to cover that far anyway, so let me just do an overview and walk you through, and then you can study this on your own. When you're in chapter 8, this is the game changer, because now the seventh seal is broken. This is so important. It's very important that you get this. You can't get into the book before this. So what are the six seals? Anybody remember what we said about the six seals that are already broken? What are those? If the scroll is not open yet, then what are those judgments? Those six seal judgments. Anybody remember that? It's a preface. It's a preface. It's like getting a book and... Or it's like the excerpt. It's an extract. It's, it's giving you a summary of what's inside. That's important because they would do that with wills. They would write the names of those. those but they had, to, they had to tell you this is a will. So they're writing on the outside. And John even tells us that. You would almost never write on the outside of a will. But John said it's written on the inside and the outside. It's a giveaway that this is a will. But the will is not, I believe that the six seals are telling you what's inside. You have four horsemen, you have judgment that's spoken of, you have bloodshed, you have hunger, you have famine, you've got inflation through the, you know, 100, uh, what was it, 12,000 time, 12,000% inflation, I think is, I have that in your notes. Um, people are dying, they're, they're starving to death. All of this is in in those seals, but so is persecution because people are going to be turning to the Lord. But by the end of the, by the time you get to the sixth seal, total cataclysmic destruction of the earth by the sixth seal, that lines up with what we're going to see in just a moment. Not even with the trumpets. There were seven, there were seven uh, judgments after this. So I want you to get that. I believe that before the scroll rolls open, God is saying, this is what's coming. And it's more general. But once the seventh seal is broken, and that's the beginning of chapter 8, it says there's silence in heaven. Because we are, remember we ended with this. We're dumbstruck. We're like, we, who can talk? Now we see it. Now we see the details. So this is what we saw uh, last time that we met. Those seven trumpets are the first judgments, the details of judgments of what's happening on the earth. I don't have time to go through all of these. I've already read them with you. But I will tell you 
And I have this in the notes, and I go even further in the book. So if you want to, you know, want to study about that, you can oh, no, forgive me. Chapter, it only goes to chapter 7. It does go into detail in the last part of Conquest and Glory, because I do deal with the judgments and the tribulation. But I will just tell you this. A lot of what you have described in the trumpets, it sounds very, very nuclear with what we know happens with nuclear situations. It could be that God just allows mankind to do what mankind does, and we're talking about nuclear attacks. Even hail, there has been known in nuclear attacks out in the Pacific that one of the things that falls from the heavens are, is hail mixed with fire. Fire is falling in the mix of hail. So there's a lot of description there, but here's the key. It's not, even if there's human involvement in this, it's God's doing. God is allowing it. Now, I happen to think there's a lot more of God's intervention. I think that there are things in these trumpets that even man in his worst day couldn't accomplish. I think it's direct judgment from the Lord. But it is something to consider that sometimes God just takes his hands off and says, you want blood? You, you, you want to be bloodthirsty? I'll give you blood. You want to live like this? I'll give you what you're asking for. And sometimes it just turns people over. It's like um, it, it's uh, Psalm 106. I, forgive me the, the verse, but it's in Psalm 106. It says that Israel lusted exceedingly in the wilderness, and God gave them desires of their heart, but gave them leanness to their soul. You want what you're asking for? I'll give you what you're asking for. But you're not going to be right with me. And it may be some of that. Now, after the seven trumpets, so go with me a little bit further now. In chapters 8 and 9, you have details of the seven, excuse me, of the six of the seven judgments. You have those. And then you have, and I don't have time to cover this, so let me just say this. And, and, and Pastor Jeff, I'm gonna, I'll just let you know this. Chapters that I have not given notes for... I, I can tweak those, and I can send them to you. I just felt that it would be just information overload. And to make copies of every chapter, it's going to be too much. I would say this, if this is all right. Those chapters that you do not have detailed notes for, if you ask Pastor, I will be giving him those, and you could order that directly from him, okay? Or just share, just share the file, you know, if you want to copy this at home, okay? That would help the church and the, the cost. And, and I, 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 sister, I think you're making the copies, if I remember correctly, so you wouldn't have to do all of that. So we would just pass the file to you for any of this, okay? I just want you to have this information. Now, when you go into, I think chapter 11 is so important because what you see there are the two witnesses. Let me just point out a couple of verses here. Chapter 11. And it says, I was given a reed like a measuring rod. Chapter 11, verse 1. It was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the worshipers there. But exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months, and I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone, thank you so much, tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouth and devours their enemies. This is how anyone wants to harm them must die. 
These men have power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time that uh, they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Um, now, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss, and you're going to, meet, you're going to be introduced to that beast yet in, 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 our, in our study tonight, it says this, um, he will overpower them and kill them, and their bodies will lie in the streets of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt. Follow this. Where also their Lord was crucified. God literally at this point says, Jerusalem is like Sodom to me and Egypt. And I'm sending my witnesses in the midst, in the streets of Jerusalem. That's powerful. Now, we know that God has a plan for Israel. I believe that with all of my heart. We were already touching last time on Zechariah in chapter 12, chapter 14. God is not finished with the nation of Israel, but he cannot accept Israel as it is right now. As a nation and as a people group, they are rejecting the Messiah. And God loves, the, loves, loves every people group. But he has a plan, and Jeremiah speaks of this. It's called the time of, of, of Jacob's trouble. And through the tribulation, um, this is where the 144,000 will be seen. I believe that they represent those who will turn to the Lord out of Israel. But I believe that there's going to be a great revival, an awakening in the nation of Israel. But I believe there's going to be great loss of life Amongst the Jewish people, Jesus said it in Matthew 24. Can you imagine? It's unthinkable. Have you ever been to the Holocaust museums? And I was in the one in Jerusalem three times. It's unthinkable. And yet Jesus said in that day it's going to be worse than it ever has been before or ever will be after that. So in other words, all the nations, it's what you see in Zechariah 12 and 13, all the nations of the world will be gathered against Israel. And the Antichrist is going to say, I'm in this. I'm going to take Israel out. I'm going to claim that piece of property. It's the crossroads of three continents. But God is saying, no, I'm bringing the nations together because I have an appointment with you at my doorstep in Jerusalem. And that's when God will deal with the nations. So I believe that um, there's, a, there's a, a clue here. Let me just hit this. Because I want, I want to paint the picture of, the, of the, the tribulation now for us. The tribulation is seven years in length, all right? I happen to believe, this is my interpretation on this, that these trumpets are happening in the first three and a half years. Things are getting bad on planet Earth. But notice, everything is measured in thirds. And I look at that as God saying, I'm bringing judgment, but two-thirds I'm being merciful with. That changes with the bulls that's coming. So I think in the first three and a half years, and I think that this could be very, very soon, I fully expect that Jesus is coming back in my lifetime. I believe he's coming back very, very soon. The tribulation could be very soon, could be starting very soon. I believe that, okay? Things are in place for that. A lot of work. There's a lot of pieces like on a chessboard that are coming together. When you see Erdogan, the president of Turkey, holding arms with Putin and also Iran, and they're all in covenant together, um, when you see that in the news, the, the players, ancient people groups that are mentioned, Ezekiel chapter 38, 38 they're all, all this is coming together. 
okay? And I think it's, I think it's very, very soon. I think it's imminent. Now, when you see in chapter 11, it says this. Look at these. This is something that's a clue for us. Go and measure the temple of God. I believe this is a physical temple. I don't spiritualize this. I have no reason to. Because Paul, and it's, and it's not apocalyptic literature, when Paul is writing to the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians, his second book, which is very, very early in his ministry, he talks about one who is coming, this man of perdition who will sit on the throne in the temple usurping the authority of God. And he's not teaching it like it's Hebrew poetry. He's not teaching it like it's apocalyptic. He's saying there will be a temple and this man will usurp the authority and say, you have to worship me. But I want you to understand something. If you compare Scripture with Scripture, and this is a whole other course of study, and I love the book of Daniel as well. You go to Daniel chapter 9, there's what's called the prophecy of the 70 weeks. And a week there is a week of seven years. It means 470 years, okay? Um, 490 years, forgive me, of time, 70 times 7. So you've got, the, you've got these, um, this, this, okay, and the last week, this last week is the tribulation. There's a lot to be said. All of a sudden, my mind's racing in that direction. We can't go there. That's, that, that's a little bit too much. But I believe that's where you get that last week where God is going to deal with Israel. And that's the seven-year tribulation. So watch this. Seven years, time of Jacob's trouble. But this says, don't measure the outer court because Gentiles are there. Daniel chapter 9 tells us that this one in the last days is going to make a covenant with Israel for one week. In that prophecy, that means seven years. If you hear talk of a seven-year covenant, forget it. (laughs) Not forget it. I mean, forget it for planet Earth. We're there, okay? It's like seven-year covenant. That's straight from the Word of God. I think that a very, very slick... I'm telling you, Antichrist is probably going to be the slickest of all politicians this world has ever known, okay? Um, I'm, going to, I'm going to share something with you that will, it, it may be a little bit radical for you in just a few moments when we get to Daniel, I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 13. And yes, we are still going to get there. I need to shift gears. But um, I believe he's going to make a peace treaty for seven years. He's going to break it, Daniel says, in the middle of that. That's this. When it says that for 42 months, what's 42 months? Remember, it's not solar years. The Jewish calendar is based on lunar, the moon. 42 42 months is three and a half years. It's half of the tribulation. And Daniel said he's going to break it in the midst, in halfway through the tribulation. He's going to make a covenant with Israel. Halfway through, he's going to turn on them. I'm going to link something together tonight, and there's so much to be covered here. I'm going to try my best to link this, some concepts together for you. I believe for the first three and a half years, the Antichrist is going to play nice, and he's going to say, everybody just worship the way you want to. It is the bumper sticker, coexist. You've seen the bumper sticker? It's that idea. Let All religions are legitimate. It doesn't matter what path up the mountain you climb. Everybody's trying to find their way. God or goddess, or maybe you're God, whatever's up there, but you just find your way. That's where the world is today. I told students this morning in chapel, they said, do you realize of Gen Z, we're talking teenagers through age 24, only four out of 100 
have a biblical worldview today. Have the basics. Heaven, hell, God is real, and Jesus is God. Only four out of a hundred of this upcoming generation. What do you think they're going to teach their children? Generation Alpha. You see the day in which we're living now. So Antichrist is going to make this, but he's going to break it in the midst. And he's going to say, everybody can have their way. I have a hunch. I can't go into it. If I start talking about that, it's another 20 minutes. But there is a reason why, and there's archaeological finds even today, why I believe that the Antichrist slick politician is going to say, Muslims, you can worship at the Dome of the Rock, but we're going to build the temple because they know and Muslims know that the Holy of Holies was not where the Dome of the Rock is. Historically, that is not true. And archaeology is showing that today. And ancient records, even Josephus writes in the first century, gives us clues that that's not where it is. And Muslims have always wanted the Jews and Christians to believe that that was the Holy of Holies, and they control that. Going back to the year, around the year 800, they already knew, and there is a place on that temple mount. It's called the shrine, the, 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 um, the shrine of the Tablets. And that, I believe, is where the Holy of Holies was. And I believe that that is going to produce, and there's so much to be said here, but I believe that's going to be part of it where the Antichrist says, everybody's going to get along here. And isn't this the biggest issue in the news for decades? Jews and, 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 and Muslims not getting along. Now you're going to be able to get along. Interesting that Ezekiel talks about a wall that separates the holy from the profane in the last day. Interesting. Maybe that's what will happen there. That the Jews and the Muslims. But three and a half years in, and this is what's going on for three and a half years. When this is going on, the government's going to have to step up. Do you watch what's happening in our world today? People are not running to the church. God is moving in the church. People who, they're coming under convictions. Most people are looking to the government to supply all the answers. We're at that place as a world. And I'm telling you at the United Nations, they're looking for one leader. And this is how it's been, and I think it's leading in that direction. And they're going to look to government, and it's going to be a worldwide government. A lot of that's already in place already. And they're going to say, you need to solve these issues. First of all, you've got to figure out where 1.2 billion Christians disappeared overnight. They've got to come up with that answer. Okay? They already have that answer. You know what they're going to say, right? Aliens. No, I'm, I'm totally straight up honest. They're going to say that. If you put in a key word in a search today, aliens seeding life on earth, you will find scientific journals, because I've heard one of the leading scientists, leading evolutionists in the world today, Stephen Dawkins, says this, the idea of a god sitting on a throne is laughable. But in the same breath, he says this, but... The thought that aliens came to this planet and seeded life here. Now, that has great prospect. I'm quoting him. Scientists are going to say, we don't know really what's happened, but it's probably a vortex or maybe alien abduction. 
and we'll figure it out in time. I'm telling you, this is how it's going to roll. I just, that's, it's, we're, you know, anyway, if I get caught up in that. But 42 months is three and a half years. But also look at this. It says that these witnesses are going to be witnessing for 1,260 days. Do the math. It's exact, three and a half years. I think that for the first three and a half years of this tribulation, these trumpet judgments are happening. Then the Antichrist is going to say, no more worship the way you want to worship. You worship me now. And, all, and that's Second Thessalonians chapter 2. So I give you that framework because now let's go very quickly to chapter 12. Um, no, before that, look at chapter 11 and verse 15. Remember that the seventh trumpet has not been blasted yet. What is the seventh trumpet? The seventh trumpet is, it's not judgment in itself. It's the announcement of the end. Look at this. And the seventh trumpet sounded. The seventh angel sounded the seventh trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And then it goes on. Uh, If you go down to verse 18, the nations were angry. Your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding the servants, the prophets, and your saints and those who have reverenced your name, both small and great, and, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. And God says, this is it. Three and a half years in, um, the, that, that trampling of the courts of the Gentiles, that could not happen during a peace covenant with Israel. The 1260 days of the witnesses, I believe all of that is looking to the last three and a half years. It is telling John that in the last three and a half years, the Antichrist and the Gentiles are going to rule in Jerusalem and they're going to take over. That's the book of Zechariah, chapters 12, 13, and 14. You see that. Then you have the seventh trumpet. Before you have... And, and I'm going to show you this. You have seven bowls. And they start in chapter 16. The seventh trumpet is announcing the next set and the final set of judgment, the, se- the seven bowls of judgment. And they are more intense than the trumpets. This is the last three and a half years. But this will help us now as you navigate through the book of Revelation. Before chapter 16... We're not going to cover it all, but I'm just going to walk you through this quickly. You've got an interlude. Remember this from Stanley Horton in class. He said, the Eastern mind does not work with time the way that we do. They will always, and this is why sometimes people say, but Jesus said it this order. It's okay. The Bible's not contradicting itself. Eastern people and Jewish people in the way they write they, they're not taken up with chronology. We are. We are of the Greek mindset, the Western mindset. We've got to see everything in chronological order. The Eastern world doesn't. They don't think that way. They will give you what's most important first and then fill in the details. And they will also insert more information that you may need to know before we go on. That's this. Chapters 12 through 15 give you an interlude. And in the interlude, you are introduced to seven personalities. There are seven personalities. I'm going to hit this very, very quickly. 
you go into chapter 12, a great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven. Now, you have this in your notes. You've got chapter 12 notes, but I'm just going to hit highlights. I, I've just got to talk through it, do a reading, and hit highlights. And if you have questions, please. And he sees this in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. I will tell you, and my notes go into this, people have questioned. The Roman Catholic Church believes that this is the Virgin Mary. I don't. I don't think there's anything in the context that shows that. I think it's the nation of Israel. I think God is showing us his plan, his protection of Israel, those who turn to him. And even this whole picture, clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, those are pictures right out of Joseph's dreams. You compare it. This is pictures there that relate back to the nation of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. So you have the first personality is this woman. I happen to believe that it's Israel. Israel is many, many times described as a woman, okay, in the Old Testament. And she's giving birth. Who is this one? She was pregnant, cried out. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous, this is the third personality, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. Now, this is Satan. He interprets it for us. This is the dragon is Satan himself. And Satan has always, from Genesis 3.15, when God said, and brought the curse upon this earth and spoke to Adam and Eve in their judgment. He also said, Satan, you're going to bite the, the heel of this woman's seed, but he is going to crush your head. And he knows, Satan knows that that's his undoing. The seed of Eve, and he knows that that's the Messiah. And he has tried to wipe out That's why he hated Israel. We're talking Haman in the Old Testament. He's tried to stop the birth of Christ. It is Herod trying to stop, even after Jesus was born, trying to kill the Christ child, every child, every boy two years and younger, because he has to stop the fulfillment. Because he's judged. This one who who is of the seed of Eve, this one who comes, will crush the head. I believe that's through the blood of Jesus Christ. So here he is, um, and he's got, and, and this is very important to see him. Red is speaking of he's bloodthirsty, he's murderous. That comes out later on. He has seven heads. That's very, very important. That coordinates. It says this, seven heads with seven crowns and ten horns. You will see that, those numbers, that picture repeated over and over again. It's in Daniel, and you're going to see it for the balance of the book of Revelation. Um. You're gonna. I, I'll wait before I comment more on that because we're going to going to get into chapter thirteen, and that will make more sense. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth, so that he might devour her child the moment she was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child. Now, this personality is Jesus Himself, a male child who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to His throne. This is the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. So now we have Israel. Israel produces the Messiah, and we have the dragon who has tried from the beginning to stop this Messiah out of Israel. Um, Interesting, he sweeps a third of the stars. This is the one verse in all of the Bible where if you've heard the teaching of one third of the angels fell 
and they are the demonic powers, they're the fallen angels, this is the verse where that is from. Because it is true that the term, the symbol of, an angel, of, of a star is used of angels several times in the scripture. The book of, 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 of Job speaks about that. So I believe that John is using that. I believe when he mentions that the dragon sweeps a third of the stars, I believe what he's talking is he led one-third of the angels in rebellion. You have that in Ezekiel chapter 28 and Isaiah 14. You can compare those scriptures where you can see where he led the angels in rebellion and, and usurped the authority of God. Okay? Now, going on, because this is important to, to where we're going. The woman, I think this is Israel. You will never find this true of Mary. But you will find it true of Israel. The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for how long? 1260 days is three and a half years. When the Antichrist breaks the peace covenant, that's seven years in the middle, now he turns on Israel and he's going to destroy Israel. And for three and a half years, they're running for their lives. Okay, but God comes to their rescue. In the notes that I give you, you can study this more in detail, but you will see how that God comes to the rescue of his people. Continuing on, and there was war in heaven. Michael and his archangels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and the angels with him. Let me go on reading and then let me just say a few very important things. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. That's happening already. We overcome the enemy by the blood of Jesus and the word of our testimony, our faith in Christ. That is a now reality. But what happens next, what he says next, gives the place for this. It's like he's saying all that's going on during the tribulation, the backstory is Satan, his rebellion against God in the ancient past, his rebellion to bring angels, a third of the angels, into rebellion against God. And now what's happening, and you know that you're three and a half years into the tribulation because you have these markers, 1260 days. Look what it says. These... Um, who are being attacked by the, by the enemy. And I don't believe it's just tribulation saints. It says they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. I believe that's Christians of all time. I'm praying for a young man named Nazir right now, who I met in, in Zanzibar. Um, now, this is being recorded, but I, I, I won't go further into that, okay? Um, you need to pray for him because he's one of those who's being persecuted. They already killed his wife and his baby. And um, family has kidnapped him. We were praying for him. He was released. He, he was able to get away. And, 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 but they've kidnapped him again, and I'm waiting for news. I've got a private feed there um, with missionaries, and we're praying for that young man. He's some of the first fruit from that nation, uh, from that island. Um, so just remember that name, Nazir. But there are those who do not love their lives even unto death. They say, I'm willing to lay it all down. Now, it says this, therefore, and this is a key, rejoice you heavens 
and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He's filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. I believe that what John is seeing when he says, I see this in the heavens. Remember the question came up and somebody had that question about the second heaven and the third heaven. There were three heavens to the Jewish people. Three. There we are. Okay, so the sky is the first. The throne room of God is the third. That's Revelation chapter 4. The second heavens is a place beyond what we can see, but a place of warfare. Right now, it is Satan's headquarters. Satan is not in the lake of fire right now. He's not in hell. He's in the second heavens. And you have that in different places, such as Ephesians chapter 6. We're not fighting fighting against flesh and blood. We're fighting against principalities and powers in the heavenlies, it says. And there is that place. Daniel saw this when an angel came and said, you remember this in Daniel chapter 10, I was fighting with the prince over Persia. I've got to go back and fight with the prince over Greece, you know, one after another, but we're battling in the heavens. Right now, Satan's warfare, his headquarters is in the second heavens. Three and a half years into the tribulation, it falls to earth. And that's why it says the heavens breathe a sigh of relief. But woe to the earth because the devil has come down to you. If you think that things are bad right now on planet earth, headquarters is in the second heavens. When Satan makes his headquarters on earth, now, I have and some of this. Sometimes you, you can't speak definitively, but you can speak of impressions. My impression is this, that there's going to be an assassination attempt, if not a successful assassination of this person three and a half years in. You do see that in the Old Testament. There's a wound in the head and in his eye area. But a key is in Revelation chapter 17, and we just read it in chapter 11, the beast who comes up out of the abyss. The abyss is Hades. It's actually, the technically, it's the quarter before Hades. And that means that this person, this Antichrist, and the beast is a system. It's the Babylon world system, but the system has a figurehead. Okay? Like they used to say in Germany during World War II, The Nazis would say Hitler is Germany and Germany is Hitler. They associated it that closely. Now that just grieves me because I have a German background, okay? But that's in that day how they looked at that. And the Antichrist will be the head of the Babylon system. You follow this? But I think the individual will, he either, either it's an assassination attempt and he doesn't actually die or the enemy, and I, have, I, I think that the enemy leads people to think that he has died. But it does say he comes back up out of the abyss. Where am I going with this? I think the Antichrist is demon-possessed. Could be on the scene, we don't know. Could already be alive, probably is. I happen to think that probably is. But when he goes into the abyss, he comes up satanically possessed. Now he is moving, and this is what what you have to see now in chapter 13. The dragon empowers him to rule the world. And now it's not, I'm going to play nice with all the religious people. Whatever you want to do, it's good with me. Now it's, you will worship me, and I will take over. 
in Jerusalem, and I will sit in that temple. I happen to think it shifts, and now Satan, that's what this means. Woe to the earth, he's now on earth. His warfare, he's got his foothold on planet earth. This is why sometimes when people, and I've had, I've had people say to me, you know, you with your pre-trib kind of ideas, you just want to get out of all the hard times and all this. And I'm like, no, you just don't really understand what's coming. You don't understand that this world will be taken over by Satan. You don't understand. That's part of what's happening in the tribulation. God's still in control, but he will rule in a way like he's never ruled on planet Earth, but God is bringing wrath. And, and then he's dealing with Israel in the midst of all of this. So I go with those verses that show that we're not appointed to wrath, and that's a whole other thing. Pastor um, Jeff, I think I had sent you um, WordQuest chapter 13, right? Oh, you did? Okay, so that, you know, that document talks a lot more about the pre-trib position and so on, and you know, convictions there. Now, any questions on this? And I, 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 I'm not even going to look at the watch. All right, I'm not going to do that. Please don't, okay? Uh, but the end of chapter 12, what you do see by the end of chapter 12 is that the Antichrist is trying to kill and using the dragon is using the Antichrist. The beast comes after Israel. God protects Israel. And one of the questions is this, and I would so love this to be the case. I said to my AG history and theology class today, I said, we have not had an awakening in America for now it's over 150 years. We've not had any kind of awakening. I want to believe that it's not too late for America. And one of the possibilities, it probably is a stretch, but sometimes you got to go with, you know, I'm hoping and praying. It's when it says this. Go to the end of Revelation 12. The dragon saw the hay had been hurled to the earth, verse 13, 12, 13. He pursued the woman who had been given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the desert where she would be taken care of for a time and time and a half a time. There you have it again, three and a half years. For three and a half years, two wings of a great eagle, I want to believe it's the United States coming to the rescue of Israel. It's a stretch, but there is that possibility, that thought. Because if America is ever seen in history, and we are the longest standing democracy in human history on this planet, and God has used America in such a powerful way, and yet we're not in the scriptures at all, I want to believe in the last days. And it is a stretch, but I want to believe that there's a turning around and America will come to the rescue of Israel and help them during that time of great persecution. All right, that's just, that's just a little, some of my, my hope in, and, and, and so on. Very quickly, chapter 13. At least let me get there, all right? Chapter 13, you see, I'm going to go quickly. And the dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. He had ten horns and seven heads. Where have you seen that before? The dragon has seven heads and ten horns. Horns were always authorities. Heads, we're told what that means later on. It's a double fulfillment. Seven heads, he tells us in Revelation 17, are seven hills on which the woman sits. Rome in that day... The name of Rome was the seven-hilled city. It's built on seven hills. 
somehow, I think, but you see, we have to be careful now because a lot of people think, oh, it's all happening in Rome. You have to understand something here. He's dealing with Rome real time. What Babylon was to the Jews in the Old Testament, the seedbed of paganism, hating the things of God, opposed to the nation of Israel, all through Jewish history, Babylon, Rome was to the Jews and to the Christians in the first century. And this gets a little confusing in the book of Revelation, but you have an intermingling, an uh, intertwining of Babylon and Rome. Don't let that confuse you. It's a world system. What John is describing is a last day's world system. I think there's going to be a revived Roman Empire, but that gets a little technical. But I think the same rebellion and hatred for the things of God and for the people of God in Babylon was true in Rome. And, and this is why he's saying the dragon has seven heads. Later on, he's going to say that the heads represent seven empires or seven kings over empires, but also seven hills in which the woman sits. So it's a double fulfillment. It brings it back to that day to the government. That was, and you have to know also that the emperors were demanding worship as gods and demigods. So this is, you, you have to understand, John is going through this in real time, but he's seeing our day. I think we're living in that day of the Babylon world system. The, let me give you this as a framework. I've got to just hit the majors here. This is a key to understanding chapter 13, chapter 17, chapter 18, and there are references in other places. Babylon world system is expressed in three parts. Babylon world system is a global world system that involves the government. It is a one world government. We are moving there. That can happen overnight. I'm telling you, you could wake up tomorrow morning and find that there are agreements, that things have shifted that quickly. It's all in place. And, and, and I just, I got to tell you something. There are powers that be that are even stronger than our own president. There are people behind all of this. And I have to be very careful with all of this right now, okay? Because I'm not trying to make political statements. They're looking for the opportunity. They're looking for the opportunity to step in. And you begin to see power plays all over the world in in recent years. Okay, in ways like we haven't seen, because they're testing this, I believe. This is what I'm saying, okay? It's what I feel. And I believe that there is a move right now towards a one-world government. There's, there's a lot that could be said with that. That's, I call it a three-stranded cord. One cord of the Babylon world system is a one-world government. A second cord is a one-world religious system. And the third chord is a one-world economy and commerce. Chapter 13 is the one-world government system. Chapter 17, the woman riding in the back of the beast, is the one-world 
You do see the beast in that picture. She devours the woman, or he devours the woman. But the woman on the back of the beast is the one world religious system. I heard growing up, that's got to be the Roman Catholic Church. I don't believe that. I believe it's the compromised church. Whether Roman Catholic or Protestant, I've met Protestants that are more... Now, I have to be careful, okay? I met Roman Catholic people that love Jesus, really love Jesus. So I don't think it's Roman Catholicism. I don't think it's Protestant. I just think it is playing games. It's what I preached in chapel this morning. It's all those that got the invitation to the great banquet but made all the excuses because they all know better. They're all religious, but they don't really want to get right with Jesus. And I think there's a lot of that. And you're not going to hear them preaching about the blood of Jesus Christ and the cross and sin. All right? So I think that this one world religious system is a hybrid, synchronistic, just God, goddess, whatever you want to worship, just go ahead and do that. Um, I want to show you something. So that is, that's Michael the Arch- that's chapter 12. I want you to see something here. Now, I don't have time to show you images. I could take you through hundreds of images. This is just a, a collage. Do you see here, and I, I have my, my pointer inside. I won't even, you see the statute here of the woman? On, well, on the top, there are statutes today. Put this in. Key word, be careful, because on the internet, it's crazy. But if you put woman riding in the back of a beast, all right, make sure your protection, your family thing is on there because the world is crazy. You understand what I'm getting at. But all over Europe are statutes like this. I have a stamp because I'm a stamp collector since I was six years of age. Somebody gave me a stamp. It is a woman riding in the back of the beast. It's from like 20 years ago. And it's a woman... It's the exact picture of chapter 17 in the book of Revelation. A beast, or I'm sorry, 13 and chapter 17. The beast comes up out of the waters. What does this mean in chapter 13 when it says, I saw a beast coming up out of the water and he has seven heads? In other words, he's moving in the power and the authority of the dragon, Satan himself, but he comes up out of the water. This is important. The sea to the Jewish mind always meant the sea of humanity. The Gentile world. I'm, just, I'm going to say something here that it's more my impression, but I think I, I feel strongly about it, all right? It's interesting that the beast comes up out of the sea, which to the Jewish mind was always the sea, the Mediterranean, was dangerous, unpredictable, and demonic. They saw it that way. They associated and they called that this was the symbol, just like all the other symbols in the book of Revelation, the symbol of the Gentiles was the sea. And I believe that the Antichrist comes up out of the sea, out of the world of the Gentiles. My conviction is this, and I've studied this and I have reason to think this. Right now in Europe, there's the Islamization of Europe. France, England, one nation after another. Islam is gaining, while all the other nations are saying, 
don't have children, have one child, and so on. Muslims are having 12 children. And they're taking over governments. If I remember correctly, the mayor of England is now Muslim. Yeah, I think that was the last that I heard. Is that yeah, London? I'm sorry, of London, yes. Not, not the city of London, the mayor is Muslim. Um, there is a book, it's very interesting. I read it a few years back. It's called The Islamic Antichrist. It's very, very interesting because it's a man who studied with a Muslim man who was a terrorist who gave his heart to Jesus and they studied together and he's taking you through the Quran and the holy writings. What we see in the Bible that describes the, the Antichrist, what we see in the Bible describing the Antichrist and he shows you, it's page after page after page, quotations that it matches the holy writings of the Quran, describing their Messiah, their Mahdi, matches who we see as the Antichrist. Now, when you move further into chapter 13, you move down, and I'll just give you the verse. I've got to summarize and come to it conclusion here. It says in verse 11, I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon. He exercised all authority of the first beast on his behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. And it says early in this chapter that the whole world is wondering how this man could be, then he dies, and now he's back. There's either a false resurrection or Satan somehow has brought this man back up out of the abyss and empowers him to rule the world. There's something that occurs to me because there is a second person in this picture. I happen to believe when I compare Scripture with Scripture, remember there are three strands, a one-world government, one-world religious system, one-world economy. I believe that the second beast oversees the one-world religious system because he's described as a lamb. And he seems to have in the description religious qualities and and, uh, interest. Do you notice something too? John says, this is, my leaning is here. I'm not telling you this doctrinally. If it's an Islamic If it's an Islamic person, by the way, do you know the creed of Islam? It's very, very, it's very clear in the in the Quran. You are able, you are expected to lie to the infidels to advance the cause of Islam. And he'll play nice with the nations and allow all that you want to do in order to get the foothold. But even if he's not Islamic, why would the Jewish people, think about this, make a seven-year peace treaty with a Gentile coming up out of the water? Except if the second person in control in the world is Jewish and you have a voice on the world scene. Think about that. The first beast comes up out of the sea, the Gentile world. No question that the Jews would have thought that. The second beast comes up out of, and the Greek word is, the land. Do you know what the land meant to Israel? It was inheritance. It was always the land of Israel. 
And I think that John is saying something here when he contrasts the sea with the land. I think what he's saying, and look, he's already called Jerusalem, Sodom, and Egypt by metaphor. Something very evil is going to go on there, and God's going to take over. He's got to destroy this evil, even in the city that he names as his own. By the end of Zechariah, this is the capital of the world. King Jesus rules on the throne, the Messiah, Yeshua HaMashiach. But in the meantime, Satan's trying to rule there. He sits in the temple, usurping the authority of God. My hunch is this, that out of the Jewish world, you say, how in the world could that happen? I told you last time, 80% of Israel today, Jews, Jews in Israel, not Arabs, 80% are agnostic or atheist, not practicing. They're secular Jews. And quite honestly, a lot of Jews would do anything for peace because they've had it. This has been their world for thousands of years. And this is my conviction from these words that John has. I don't see why else the Jewish nation would go into a seven-year peace treaty unless they had representation. But let me wrap up with this. When you read chapter 17... You see, you see a woman sitting on the back of the beast. The beast comes up out of the water. When you look at these images all over, in the stamp that it was given, it's very obvious in the picture of the stamp that the woman is wearing a negligee, sitting on the back of a beast, and angels are holding up the corners of it, and the beast is riding on waves. This is all in the stamp. The stamp was there to celebrate the birth of the European Union. I have a copy of it. It's not made up. It's not tabloid at the, get, at the, at the grocery store. They're celebrating. You say, why would Europe ever celebrate that picture? Because it's all drawn from what was known as, in mythology, the abduction of Europa. And the whole name of the, of the continent of Europe is, they draw it from Lady Europa from ancient history, and that area was already called Europe in John's day. So he's describing something that's being raised up out of the area that he knows geographically in that day. Today, all over Europe, you will find, and you know the picture is this, the woman's riding in the back of the beast, and it's almost like I'm controlling. The religious system is controlling the government until Revelation 17. Look at this picture. And with this, I wrap up, and then you can fill in with the notes. Look at verse 16, chapter 17 and verse 16. The beast and the ten horns. Ten horns, I believe, are not ten kings. They are a, it's dividing the world into ten parts. In the last days, the one world government system, the one world government system will divide the world into 10 parts. I have on my laptop, and I don't think it's still there on the site. I could look it up again, but I have from the European Union website the world divided into 10 zones on a map ruled from Europe. I have it on my, I can show you the map. And I got it from the European Union government website. The world divided into ten zones. And this says that 
the Antichrist, the one world government, this major figure who says, no more worshiping the way I want all the worship, he turns on the woman. The beast and the ten horns you saw hate the prostitute, this one world religion. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to give the beast their power to rule until God's words are fulfilled. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. I believe this. The woman for the first three and a half years will say, it's a religious world. Everybody just worship the way that you want to. We control the government. Then the beast turns on the woman and devours. Because three and a half years in, he breaks the peace covenant with Israel, and he turns on all the religious entities, all witchcraft, anything and everything. No, all the worship is now to the beast. And the false prophet sees the handwriting on the wall, and he turns all the worship. And you see that in chapter 13, that he directs all the worship of the world. And this is where you have the number 666, because that marries together the commerce of the world, the religion of the world, and the government of the world. And it's all mixed together for the first three and a half years. Three and a half years later, and to Christ, if it's a physical assassination or an attempt he goes into the abyss he comes out and everything changes you will worship me now when you read chapter 17 it rushes to that place where now the the whole world is governed by the beast and that 10 nation or it's not a nation but a 10 zone i think that was even the way it was in the map that confederacy of the world all right i'm going to stop there I didn't get to chapter 18, but you have the notes. Bottom line is chapter 18 is the commerce of the world. I happen to think that there is one city like no other city that is the epitome of Babylon, the world it represents. When I read chapter 18, I see New York City. I do not say that New York City is Babylon. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying it is the quintessential. There are symbols of Babylon's system. There is no other place in the world where when that city is hit by a wave and takes it out, that the whole world mourns because the economy just shrunk, just died overnight. And they're weeping, all the people that got rich off the city, because it represents something on a worldwide platform. I need to stop There's so much to cover.